0: It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask if Lando Norris is ready for F1 and why Daniel Kvyat is set for another chance. Another piece of the driver market puzzle has slotted into place this week, with McLaren announcing Formula 2 frontrunner Lando Norris will replace Stoffel van Dorn in 2019. Remarkably, McLaren is only the fourth team, along with Mercedes, Red Bull and Renault, to have confirmed a full lineup for 2019. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to look at Norris' prospects, as well as the rest of the latest machinations in the F1 silly season, first is our Formula 2 correspondent, Jack Benyon. Now, you must be delighted at finally forcing your way into a lineup for a podcast after multiple near misses in recent months.
1: Yeah, the discrimination against Benyons in the workplace is going to campaign this massively. Now I'm finally on. But on the one on the positive
0: side, though, you have often been in a room next to the podcast. Some of our Sunday night Grand Prix ones, you've been able to sort of listen in from from afar.
1: I think there was a misconception on the on the Austria podcast that there was a horse outside, but it was actually just me in the other room just making random horse noises. That's the kind of quality input we're expecting in this uh,
0: in this podcast from you. Uh, my second guest is autosport.com editor glenn freeman Uh, thanks for allowing yourself to be prized away from presenting videos on autosport's youtube channel for a few precious minutes
3: yeah thanks for calling me up uh podcasts much easier than video because i don't have to look presentable um so yeah i'm just uh here hanging out making no effort whatsoever in the way i look and um possibly a little bit of effort on what i'm going to talk about i'll try
0: you see, you say that, but myself and Benyon here are sat here in our dinner jackets, all, all correctly dressed. I didn't get a memo podcasts. about
3: dress code for podcasts. I had no idea.
0: <laughs> well, you'll remember next time. It's very, very important for uh, for an audio platform. Well, let's actually get on with it. Uh, Lando Norris, Jack, he's currently second in Formula Two behind George Russell. He hasn't won since the season opener in Bahrain. So, do you think he's ready for Formula One with McLaren?
1: It's been an interesting season for for Lando and obviously Formula 2 is the place where he's uh, made his trade this year and and done his best to, to try and convince McLaren that he's the right man for the job. I think his qualifying has been where his massive struggle has been this year. They've Carlin have had a, a little bit of a struggle, I'd say, but also Lando's struggled to to beat his teammate Sergio Herta in some qualifying as well. So it's been a, a difficult season in in that sense for Lando. The race pace has been good, and quite often he's come from from sort of lower reaches of the top ten to to get strong top five results, and that's been the 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 crux of his campaign really is consistency. You know, lots of top five finishes over the course of the year, both in the feature races and the reverse grid sprint races as well. So while you've got George George Russell, who has taken five wins in the championship this year, uh, has had many, many reliability problems. Lando's managed to, to stay clear of those reliability problems in, in most cases. So it's been a, a season of consistency from him and a season of, of raw pace from Russell. So it's been quite interesting to see how the two approach it but I think what we've seen from Lando is um, you know he's he's said that this season has been the worst of his career so far he's been very self-critical of himself especially with the, the qualified performances but his ability to to criticize himself and, and look into his own performance and, and then fix it in most cases um, is, is definitely you know that bodes well for, for working with McLaren uh, we've seen him have the FP1s recently and the engineers are obviously impressed with his feedback and the way he constructs his feedback as well so I think what he's learnt this year, it, you know, it is enough to get into Formula One, but
3: only only uh, time will tell in terms of what he's actually like when he gets into the, the seat. I think it's really interesting that Lando's gone into F2 as a rookie and we're talking about maybe the peaks not being as high as Russell's, but um, the fact that he's gone in and is able to be consistent because we see so many drivers who are hot prospects before they get to the F2 or formerly GP2 level. And they're not able to deliver that consistency in the first season. The guys who do achieve that tend to be the exception to the rule. And that's I think that's a very good sign. So no one's sat here saying that he's a much better prospect than Russell for an F1 seat. We'd love to see them both get in a drive for next year. But I think there's, there's something very important about being able to develop consistency in F2 immediately. Because track time is so limited. The tyres are so tricky. We've got um, a new car this year, of course, as well. It's just it's a difficult place to hit the ground running and I think it is significant and McLaren will have noted the fact that he has achieved that even if, as you say, Jack, maybe not racking up the wins but certainly racking up notable achievements I'd say in that category I think
1: the the key thing with Formula 2 is the tyres you know that's where it that's what it all comes down to at the end of the day if you if you manage the tyres um, if you switch them on well in qualifying those are the, the key things to F2 and Lando hasn't got that year's experience of the Pirellis that, that George Russell has from GP3 you know Lando uh, reigning European F3 champion so they use a hand-cooked tyre which is much more durable not as uh, you know it doesn't degrade as much as the Pirelli in the races so for Lando to come in and uh, immediately uh, be on the pace of of Russell in a you know Russell in a team like ART very well established um, and and to get up to speed immediately and be able to look at the tyres you know relatively well I'd say uh,
3: that's been a, a key part of Lando's campaign as well. I think another key thing to look at here, looking at the F1 driver market as a whole, in every discussion we have about this and every article we're writing about it, it's become clear that there are more good drivers than there are available seats so if you're looking at mclaren taking a guy who is unproven at the f1 level they're not doing it because they have to because if they just wanted a solid pair of hands a guy who they know can do can achieve a certain level in f1 they take someone who's going to end up being available when when the music stops and, and someone's run out there aren't enough chairs um so this isn't a case of mclaren as a result of a decline in form not having anyone who wants to come there they they there are drivers who are going to be available for them they've decided that lando's the best bet there and i think that's significant especially given that he has had some track time in their f1 car he had a a bit of testing last year and then some more running this year so they've they've got enough data now i think to make an informed decision there and i i really get the impression they haven't really hesitated here i think they've just gone right he's the man for the job stick him in alongside science next year and let's see how he does I think the free practice session he did,
0: particularly at Spa, when it was in good conditions, was was pretty important for this. Actually putting him in on a Grand Prix weekend, he'd already impressed in... in the tests where you have a bit more time in in the car. So I think they're confident that he's he's certainly got the pace.
1: I'd actually say um, Monza was just as important because although he only got nine laps there, uh, it was his first run in in an F1 car on that track. He had to get in the car, learn learn the track very quickly in difficult, changeable conditions. So for him to do that and McLaren to be impressed with his pace sort of immediately at Monza... Um, it was a more pressurised situation, you might argue, than, than Spa was because he had so so little time to actually get those laps in. I think McLaren knew before the session and, and Lando knew before the session that they weren't going to do many laps because of the number of tyres that you have over an F1 weekend and, and needing to save those wets in case it, it rained again. So I think that, you know, I agree the Spa weekend would have been very important, but I think Monza was, you know, has maybe been overlooked by some people. Oh, he only did nine laps. It's not that important. I think that was massively vital in, in McLaren's decision.
3: I think mean, there's a key thing to maybe point out to people who might not have followed Lando as closely as we have in his years getting to this point is his, his CV is, is impeccable. You know, Since he's graduated to car racing as a world karting champion, he won MSA Formula, which is effectively F4 now in 2015. He won two championships, including the euro cup title at formula renault level the following year one year well,
0: euro- well it was three in 16 so he also won the Toyota racing series exactly. as well as the team yeah, which titles.
3: is a great little sort of winter series that's um you know propped up for for young drivers um on the other side of the world and then formula 3 last year you know the, the f3 european championship remains uh, a, a great trophy to get on your cv i consider that to be a kind of lewis hamilton level CV. Now we don't know if Lando's going to be that good. It'd be great for for British racing if he is but when you've got a CV like that you can't really be ignored by F1 teams for very long and Jack and I were talking about this earlier and he made a very good point which is that when you get to F1 what you've achieved before kind of gets forgotten and as Stoffel Van Dorn is finding out and we'll come on to him later, you become defined by what you do in F1. So Lando's going to have it all to do again but a record like he's got already just, that is... That's not just knocking on the door of F1. That is, that is bow, banging the door down.
0: That's the thing. I think people tend to look at it as, well, every driver that gets to F1 proves themselves in the junior categories in some way, shape or form. And then it's kind of a clean slate. But but you do see differences. You can have drivers with similar titles, but very different seasons, very different ways of doing it. And that's what makes a driver like Norris particularly impressive in that he has been at every level, impressing people, really, really being, being quick. And although people might, might say, Jack, that, well, he's he's second in F2. He's not winning it. If he was all that, he'd, he'd be winning it, wouldn't he? But I think, like you alluded to, George Russell's leading the championship for ART. Lando's with Carl in a very, very good team, but not quite with the same history in, in that category as, as ART has.
1: Absolutely and no you know he's, he's 18 years of age you know Max Verstappen has, has lowered that age level of what we expect from drivers coming into F1 now hasn't he I don't always necessarily think that's a good thing you know I think it depends on the driver and, and how much time they need to develop but Lando's two years younger than George Russell and you know you look at Lando's CV as you've already said it's, it's absolutely incredible for a person of his age to have achieved what he has in in such a short period of time and you know I think like like Glenn said, really the the door's been well and truly knocked down by someone of that age to have achieved uh, a CV like they have, and it like we've already alluded to, it's very it's been a very difficult season in F two for for multiple reasons. We talked about the tires. Um, Glenn mentioned the new car as well, and that's had a lot of problems, lots of unreliability issues with the with the engine, the the clutch, um, you know, lots of different problems, and that kind of thing is is maybe uh, another thing that helps. Possibly helps. Um, Lando's had a bit of experience of car unreliability and had to deal with that over the course of the year. So, like, like the rest of the drivers in F2,
3: but I think it's good still- preparation for driving for McLaren. <laughs> well, well that's, that's an interesting
0: question, isn't it? Because McLaren. They're trying to get their house in order. We're expecting they'll be a little bit better, a little bit more convincing next year. But it's not going to be an easy place to be. Uh, People keep drawing comparisons with Lewis Hamilton, which is obvious. Same nationality, McLaren Jr., hot prospect from the junior formulas. But Hamilton went into a team that was able to fight for the World Championship. I think no matter what happens with McLaren, they're not going to be fighting for (laughs) wins in the World Championship next year. So that's the final question, isn't it? Does Norris, at his age, with his mindset and mentality, do, do we think he's going to be able to kind of absorb the pressure that will inevitably come from driving for a team that by the standards it set for itself will automatically probably be overachieving be underachieving next year
1: it's it's a big mental thing isn't it you know I'm sure we'll talk about Stoffel van Dorn later on but he's gone from having arguably one of the best single seater uh, CVs in terms of junior formula uh and then gone a long period of time without winning a race. So that kind of thing can really affect a driver mentally. You know, if you're used to turning up every weekend and winning races and, and being you know the thing that everyone's talking about and suddenly you get to F1 and there's no wins and things are very tricky, it's a you know it's a difficult situation to be in. So I think there's a lot to uh there'll be a bit a lot of mental stress for, for Lando when he when he does get to F one. Uh, But from what we've seen so far, uh, for a person of his age, he's been able to to handle those situations very well. So uh, I think he's got what it takes mentally.
3: My initial answer to your question there, Ed, was going to be that I hope McLaren give him time, especially while the team are trying to sort themselves out and make, you know, they're not going to be giving him a great car from the off. So he's going to be learning perhaps further down the grid. But I think we've just seen with Van Dorn that McLaren, at best, are maybe going to give you two years. So as Jack says, Lando's got to get on with it and we've got to hope that what we've seen from him I think what's really key is talking about how self-critical he is you know the the best drivers in Formula 1 don't spend much time patting themselves on the back for how good they are and I think that's going to be really important for Lando if he's doing that already while things have been going quite well through his career he's going to need to do that more than ever when he gets to F1 because the bar is so much higher Science is going to be a tough teammate and it's going to be difficult at McLaren next year he was actually leading the championship when he made those
1: comments about um you know it being his worst season ever so you know he's leading one of the you know the regarded as one of the highest junior single seater formulas in the world and uh, you know he's saying it's his worst season ever so you know that that kind of gives you an insight as to how self-critical he is and how seriously he takes his own performance and and analysing that performance as well.
0: Well, for another perspective on Lando Norris, uh, we're going to speak to Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner. I, I had a chat with him earlier. Of course, Lando Norris won the twenty sixteen McLaren Autosport BRDC award. Kevin Turner a, a judge of that, and of course, that award in the past has been won by Jensen Button, Anthony Davidson, Paul DeResta, David Coulthard. It's it's a very uh, very illustrious award for uh, for an up and coming British driver. Lando was one of the easier ones to pick for 2016
2: um, because he came into it off the back of uh, three titles, which I think is pretty much unprecedented. Uh, he'd won two Formula Renault two-liter titles, Eurocup NEC, uh, and Toyota Racing Series in New Zealand as well. So it was a he was a, he was one of the first ones to go on the board when we were picking the finalists for that year. Um, and then obviously the the big part of the award is the two days at Silverstone, and I think I'm right saying that he was. Not quickest in every session, but he was he was quickest. He was first or second quickest in every session, quickest in every car. Um, so those three cars were the, the F two car where they're all out at the same time.
0: That's the old F two car, isn't it? The,
2: the, the yes, the old, the old yeah, the Williams built uh centrally run cars. Um but they have still got, you know, 450 to 500 brake horsepower. We give them a day without boost so they get used to it because obviously it's a lot quicker than the cars they're used to at that point, you know, these guys tend to be coming out of, you know, 2D's Formula Renault, um, you know, sometimes British F4, you know, that that sort of level. So it's a big step for them, more downforce, more power. Uh, and then the second day, we throw in the, the old qualifying boost as well, which which drivers at the time used to get wrong, if you remember, Ed. That was uh, you know, that was quite a tricky thing to get right. Um, so it was quite a lot thrown at them, and um, yeah, he was he was on it the whole time. I think there was one session, which I suspect even if you asked him now, he'd know exactly what he did wrong. There was one session that he didn't he didn't top basically uh, towards the end of the two days in the F two car, which was a longer run, uh, and it was basically that year we had. Uh, I think I'm right in saying Pirelli tyres that were, were uh, quite high degradation. So in that sense, it was quite similar to the, the sort of the, the F1 situation um, at certain places. And uh, there was a very much debate. It was the first time we'd had them on the cars, and there was a debate: Do you tr- look after them and hope that they'll then last all the way through to the end of the stint, or do you just go out and nail it and deal with it as it goes off? Lando tried to be tried to be clever about it and go out at a set pace, and the tyres fell away anyway. So one of the other finalists who went out there and just decided to nail it uh, actually ended up with a quicker time and he, he put it i think land only almost immediately that he can't, if i did that again i'd do it differently um that but that was the only blot across the two days you know he was quickest in the uh, dtm mercedes and the mclaren gt3 car at various points obviously conditions change that's so why it's nice to have the f2 cars all out at the same time because it doesn't matter if the conditions change you still see who's quickest so you do have to extrapolate a little bit sometimes with the dtm and the gt car but he he impressed in all in all three
0: Obviously, it's not just about the pace, though. You also do the interviews off track. You do all sorts of evaluations of of him. So, what about him as a as a character? Even a couple of years ago, what what made a good impression? Because you try to take a quite holistic view of the drivers, don't you?
2: Think yes, absolutely. The thing that impressed me was the other three finalists. You know, Lando's obviously come along with a lot of hype, pretty much straight out of karting. You know, everyone knows he's been, you know, he's well backed. He's been doing a lot of racing, had a lot of seat time, and the other three uh finally sort of ganged up on him at various points. Like they all got on. It wasn't a case of you know, nobody speaking to uh, to, to another. But at various points they all tried to needle him a bit with, oh well, you know, you've just gonna bought track time here or of course you can just buy a drive here or there or wherever. And he just, you know, he sort of he'd have a perhaps a one line reply, you know, quite witty and just sort of quietly smile to himself and just get on with it. It didn't really appear to ruffle him at all and then he'd just get in the get in equal cars and and, and blow them away, sort of make the point that way really. Um, so, yeah, no, he was, he was quite quite a character, um, but, you know, knew what was going on. You know, he was very sharp, given how young he was. Um, one one thing that, that stands out, I remember standing at uh, Maggots and Beckett's, back to on track, with Jason Plato, uh, who's been a judge for a few years as well. And he um, he turned to, turned to me and said, you yeah, know, this, this guy isn't just the best this year. He's the best finalist I've seen. Um just because of the way he's treating the car, he knew where to be on on the road. It was a really graphic place to see the difference between him and the other, you know, the other finalists. Who who did sort of work one of them worked down to being reasonably close, but you know, Lando always had those extra few tenths in hand.
0: And when it comes to translating kind of what you see at that that age at that level into what you expect for the future, do you think, yeah, this is a guy who will make it to F1? Not because of the fact he has got decent backing behind him, saying you get opportunities, but just in terms of proving himself, as he has done, he's gone on to win uh, European F3. He's currently second in Formula Two, so he, he's kind of shown that every step of the way he he's risen to the risen to the challenge. Do, uh, were there indications of that? Can you can you tell that kind of thing in, in this scenario? It's very tricky, but I
2: think over the years we've seen that yes, it does tend to tally. And in fact, in a way, the test has become more relevant. Um, over time because testing in virtually every category has been reduced so the the two most important things i think you can look at are how quickly does someone get up to speed the award is almost always won by the person that comes out on day one and just nails it that's not necessarily when the fastest laps are done but all the sessions are weighted evenly and it's this idea that it all goes towards the end but that's not really the case so if you come out and you're on the limit immediately it shows who's got the confidence and you're also looking for drivers, and this is particularly true of people like Mark Williams, his next, you know, he's won world championships with McLaren. Yeah, He's looking for somebody who doesn't take hours to get up to speed. They need someone you go out, you find the limit, you come in, you say, This is what I need from the car, go out, do it again. And the winners, and Lando was one of those just that can do that, go out and, and put it on the line. And the other is being um, clever enough and self critical enough to improve. So although a lot of racing drivers do give a, a sort of obviously a quite an arrogant-sounding persona, I've, I believe most of the good ones have got to be internally self-critical at very least, because otherwise you don't get better. And I think Lando is very critical of his own performances. You know, you try and big him. I remember speaking to him after his Hungary test in 2017, the prize test from the award, Um and everyone else was raving about it. And he was very understated. Oh, no, well, I had softer tyres than, you yeah, know, than Fernando had and... Whatever time corrected, it was three tenths slower than Alonso on his first F1 run, um, and uh, he, you know, he he didn't want to get carried away with his own, you know, with his own hype. Um, and there's a nice little window into that after he won the award on the night, as my job was to make sure he got out of the room as quickly as possible because otherwise everyone else couldn't start drinking. He was that young, and so it was just the two of us, and uh, and he seemed quite emotional, and he, he was basically saying, you know. It's, it's difficult to know when you're in it and you're doing it and you're speaking to the same people who are part of your sort of entourage if you like yeah how well am i doing so to get some independent feedback and say no you were you did this you you went out and won this award and everything was even and yeah, nothing stacked in his favor i think it meant it meant quite a lot to him and that was quite quite a nice moment
0: he turns 19 in november so do you think he's ready from what you've seen a couple of years ago is he a yeah. quick enough learner? Has, has, he got, yeah. has he got an old head on his shoulders?
2: Yes, I think so. I think he'll be, because of that self-criticism, I think he will learn quickly. You know, He's been in that environment. You know, He's he's very good in the simulator. You know, that was another thing. McLaren sort of gave him that simulator role, but before they give you a proper simulator role, they need to make sure that you know what you're doing. And within a month of him... F- going there they'd given him race simulator work so you'll know they said obviously overnight from friday to saturday they send the data back to base they get their simulator driver in and say right we should try you know tomorrow stoffel and fernando should try this setup so that's quite an important responsibility for a teenager and the fact that he was on top of that so quickly yeah i think he's yeah i think he's ready um, i'm sure jack Benning will have a view on on how the ft season's gone um, but he's you know, he's clearly operating in the top two or three of that category straight away. He won F3 as a rookie. So I think he's just one of those drivers that will just get on it pretty much straight away.
0: Well, Norris's promotion means that Stoffel van Dorn is out of McLaren. Glenn, you covered van Dorn in both Formula One, a year a cup and Formula One o three point five 3.5 when he was on the rise. So surely it's worth another team having a look at him.
3: Well, Ed, as you know, I make extensive notes before these podcasts when you let us know what the topics are going to be. And uh, for this question, I've written in massive letters, yes. Um, I can expand on that for a bit if you want. Um, with an exclamation mark, perhaps, or underline it? I probably should have added an exclamation mark, yeah. Maybe some uh, some hands flying around in the air. But, no, Van Dorn, as we talked about actually earlier, when we were talking about Lando Norris's CV, Van Dorn's CV was excellent in the junior formula as well. He ended up at McLaren just at, at the worst time. You know, they they kept thinking that things were going to turn around with Honda arguably 2017 started worse than they even they could have imagined. Um, we will. I think we've all seen the, the documentary series, which offered a fascinating insight into just what a wreck McLaren was as a team at that point. and And that partnership McLaren Honda partnership. So imagine walking into that at the start of your F1 career, you've got Fernando Alonso on the other side of the garage who, when he's not either uh, swearing about the engine on the radio and testing or talking himself up in the media is doing a pretty damn good job in the car when it's running, and um, I think Van Dorn just got a bit blown away by all of that. But as we've seen with Kevin Magnussen, if you can get if things don't go well at McLaren, and then you can get yourself out, someone else can rebuild you. And Haas have rebuilt Kevin Magnussen, and Kevin has rebuilt himself in a, in another environment to the point where he's ended up being the, putting the pressure on Roman Grosjean to the point where the guy who used to be who started as the linchpin of Haas when they came into F1 has now got his future almost in doubt because of the job Magnussen's doing I believe that someone if they take a chance can do the same with Van Dorn
0: well, I argued even before he was dropping, I did a piece about saying that, that Red Bull should sign in to put in Toro Rosso. It would make, yeah. make perfect sense. There is also a possibility with Sauber. So there's a couple of options there, but he could very, very easily be be out in the cold, which would be, uh, which would be uh, a, a great shame. But obviously, Jack Van Dorn, when he was doing GP2, the forerunner of F2, it's the same championship really, but but different name. I've got to see him in action a lot there. When you've got a driver who's that strong at that level, you have to at least have a second look at him if you're one of the one of the other teams.
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a no brainer. You mentioned Tororos already. I think that's probably the best option for, for Van Dorn if he could choose right now. Um Salbo, you know, we talked about Uh, Frederick Vassour there was um, obviously key in in Van Dorn's junior single-seater career so I'm sure he'll be lobbying to to have him there obviously that causes a few problems with Sauber they've got one driver reserved for you know for a Ferrari seat and and Marcus Ericsson brings a lot of budget to that team as well so it's a a difficult situation for for them to be in to to pick him up but you know the fact that we look at this junior single-seater career that, that Van Dorn's had and you know maybe he's not done the the, the perfect job at McLaren since he's been there but as Glenn has already said he, you know he walked into a, a a bit of a nightmare situation really and for, for for him not to be given a second chance would be uh, outrageous I think just given the you know the level of performance that he he produced before he got to F1 um, and you know not every team is a perfect fit for every driver and you know like you've already said with Magnussen maybe Stoffel can, can do really well in a different team
3: I really like the idea of Red Bull who are famed for taking young drivers either out of karting or at the lower levels of single-seater racing and grooming them and turn them into the, the finished article. That's wh- that's where we've got Sebastian Vettel, Max Verstappen, Daniel Ricciardo, science now as well. So many guys who've come through. jean eric Verne, current Formula E champion, was groomed by Red Bull. But I like the idea of them taking a guy who's already in F1, still young, but it's all gone awry for him. And I want to see what Red Bull can do with someone who's almost considered damaged goods now. And I want to see them like, repair him, repackage him, And I think that would be a massive achievement for sort of Helmut Marco and the guys there who do nurture the drivers. And I think Red Bull could definitely do it. They've got a gap at the moment in the Torosso lineup to to fill. And I think Van Dorn's a perfect candidate. I think it it can work for both parties.
0: Yeah, very much so. And we've seen that Van Dorn over the past 18 months at his best, he's on Alonso's level. Go back to Canada when it seemed like he'd really kind of, got to a nice level point for the season. He qualified at basically the same pace, but then all sorts of problems, the car just not working properly, he's not had the right spec of car. Just It's just really, really unravelled for him. And sometimes you just need to, to get out and, and start again. And I, I do think he deserves another choice because it, well, it's not even that he deserves another chance. It's a chance for a team to take a driver who has been developed elsewhere and been given that experience and actually really, really benefit from it. And he's worked with Honda. Exactly, yeah. So he, and he had a good relationship with him. So uh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. So uh, yeah, I, I suggest Red Bull should get on the phone to him uh, as soon as they can. Now, of course, Daniel Kvyat is very, very close to getting another chance at Formula One with Toro Rosso. He's surprised by that, Glenn? We know Red Bull are struggling a little bit for for the driver production line. There's a little bit of a of a, a sort of hiatus before the next uh, the next bunch come along. But yeah, Kvyat seemed to be uh, all washed up, didn't he?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised by this story and baffled. You know, Red Bull, famously ruthless with their drivers. Kivak comes into F1 with, with a decent junior career, um, gets promotion from Torosso to Red Bull's A-team, is there for just over a year, then gets bumped back to Torosso to make way for the irresistible force that's matched Verstappen. And then you sort of think then that, It's all over and that he's just, he's filling a space at Toro Rosso until they have the next guy to bring in. But he got a stay of execution there, I think, for longer than we expected. Then gets binned before the end of last season. And then surely that is it. Red Bull, if Red Bull get rid of you once, that tends to be it. If they've effectively got rid of you twice, that really should be it. I, I can't understand why, as I mentioned earlier, there are so many drivers available at the moment. I can't understand why you'd go back to a guy who you've decided twice is not good enough for either of the F1 teams that you own. I, I don't get it. He's an interesting driver, Kvyat. His first season in Formula 1 with Toro Rosso in
0: 2014 was, was really impressive. And of course, he got the promotion to replace Vettel when he went on to Ferrari as a result. There's real pace in there. And, and there were there were positives about his performance with, uh, with with Red Bull. He did get a couple of podiums. He outscored Ricardo in 15. I think the way the reliability played against uh, them at different times of the season when the car was stronger or, or weaker, distorted that. Ricardo was the better driver that year, but yeah, it shows Kvyat's no mug, and I think he got this reputation, was it people called him a torpedo, which I think is a, a little bit harsh. Yes, there were some unfortunate incidents, notably at Sochi uh, in 2016, before he was bumped down to Toro Rosso to make space for Verstappen when he had a couple of collisions <laughs> with, with Vettel. So uh, I think that there's clearly there was clearly a bit of a mental weakness there you struggling to kind of get everything under control and and deal with the pressure so the real question is there is after a year from red bull after a year away from red bull he's been working with ferrari as one of their uh, one of their drivers they've been doing some uh some simulator work etc has that allowed him to gain some distance and some perspective on what he's doing is it one of these things where a driver getting a second chance is a bit more in a way, relaxed about it. Not that they're not taking it seriously, but they don't put the same pressure on themselves, and they're able just to allow their qualities to, to emerge. That's what they'll be. That's what they'll be hoping for. But I, I think the, the main motivation is they need a, a driver in that car also that knows the team because they're clearly not convinced with Brendan Harley They tried to replace him earlier this season, so that's why they've they've settled on 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 Kvyat. But I, I don't think he's a no hopper by any stretch of imagination. But they've got to have a pretty sound reason to think the same thing's not going to happen again.
1: I think the, the difficult. Uh, sort of thought process behind this for me is that you know Kvyat was good at Toro Rosso when he was there last time so putting him back there what you know what is that going to prove is that do they think they're going to see enough out of him that um, they think he's solved the apparent sort of mental issues that, that he had uh, when he went to Red Bull because if he's if he's failed at that once I don't understand what putting him into the feeder team for a second time is, is going to do is that well,
0: especially as he, he- it was his third stint with the feeder team, really, and, he, and and compared to Carlos Sainz in that period after he was bumped back, the the point I can't remember the exact points tally, but it, you know, Sainz had more than ten times his points in, in that period. It wasn't a small difference.
3: It's just it's just not very Red Bull, is it? I I, I can't understand it. I I. I was stunned they retained him at all after they bumped him down from the top team because I've always felt that Helmut Marcos' decision-making process, you think of guys like Buemi and Verne, the guys who were at Toro Rosso and never got the chance to step up. It always seemed to be the moment we don't think you're good enough for the top team, we're not really interested in you at all beyond that point. So I, I can't, I still can't get my head around the fact that they kept him the first time and then the fact that they could... They could bring him back. What I will say in defense of Red Bull very quickly is that some of those potentially good drivers who are who might be available have contractual ties to other manufacturers. The obvious one being Esteban Ocon with Mercedes. If they could get Ocon, they'd take him in a flash. I think anybody would. But some of these drivers that we're we're talking about there are yeah, there are ties to manufacturers or the big teams. They don't have anywhere to put those drivers. And then they're only really looking at the really independent teams as maybe being places that you can place someone. Red Bull don't want to groom someone else's driver for them, mainly because Red Bull are very good at it. So that's why when they sniffed around Norris earlier in the year, they were only interested if it was a clean contractual break from McLaren. And I can understand Red Bull's policy on that, but I think you are going to have someone like Van Dorn who is clear contractually and is definitely worth a shot. I think the one positive for Kvyat, one encouraging thing, is,
0: if you remember, he was dropped in 2017 after Singapore to make room for Pierre Gasly, who then did two races, but then Gasly had the final round of the, well, the final double double header of the Japanese Super Formula Championship, so Kvyat was slotted back in for the United States Grand Prix in Austin, and he did seem to be a very different driver, though. He he was more relaxed, he got 10th place, it was a very good weekend's performance. I remember uh, speaking to him after the race, and he's like, well, you know i I know i've done my job he he had he knew it was too too little too late but that's that's maybe the case that because the pressure had gone i think he knew he short of winning the race with some sensational charge through the field in the wet which wasn't going to happen i think he knew there was nothing he could do in that weekend to change anything and maybe with that pressure going he was able to do that perhaps a second chance sometimes you hear people say well once you've had your chance and you think it's gone and it comes back, you have a different perspective on these things. You don't necessarily put the same pressure on yourself because it's kind of a, this, this bonus. Maybe that's the sign that Red Bull has seen that he, he's capable of doing this. But there's no question that it's a it's a question of them needing drivers and him just being a, a convenient. He's solution. a stopgap, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And there's
1: there's, there's no doubt that you know, they could put him in and it could be an absolute masterstroke. You know, we could see the caveat the that we saw when he first went to Toro Rosso and, you know, he, he, could, be, um, he, he could be a different driver completely and, and it might be a brilliant move. But going off what we've learned already, you know, from what we've discussed here in this podcast, uh, you know, we can't sort of understand the decision that's being made. And I think it is a symptom of um, the right drivers not being available to, to Red Bull. That, that situation in itself is interesting um, in terms of, you know whether Red Bull have been too successful in their driver development and they've promoted them all too quickly and they've got no one left, or whether they're not doing enough now. Uh, you know, in this maybe in the past two or three years, they've they've uh, not done as much at the the lower levels of single seaters to to keep those drivers coming through. It's a, it's an interesting topic in itself, but yeah, like we have said, it's definitely feels like a stopgap solution for them, doesn't it? To to put Dan Kvyat in. And it is interesting time for Russia in Formula 1. They've already got Sergei Sorotkin
0: on the grid. Daniel Kvyat looks like he's be, he's going to be returning. And also we've got Artem Markalov, a Formula 2 race winner, who is in contention for a Williams seat. There is also a possibility even that Markalov could be in the car this year, uh, in, actually race the car this year. That's dependent on Lance Stroll moving across to Force India. And then what Williams could do, that's probably not going to happen for Singapore, but it could, happen, it could happen at the Russian Grand Prix, potentially, that you know this this is all still being sorted out. But... What, what do you make of Markolov? we've seen some very good race performances from him. We've seen some less convincing ones from him. What what level's he at?
1: It's yeah, it's been a mixed bag for for Artem I and obviously this is his this is his fifth season of F of two now. I think and In fairness he was put into F two very, 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 very early. Absolutely, yeah, way way too early really for, for, for anyone to, to really do well at that point, but I think the and interesting, he was, and
0: he was terrible in his first season. He looked like, like a yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, going, definitely. like as anyone probably would.
1: Exactly, and I think the the interesting thing this year is that we've got a new car. So although he's in a very good team in, in Russian time, you know they're the they're the reigning champions. It does equalise the field a little bit in terms of in terms of what you get with the car. Uh, the difficulty there has been that people have had varying levels of reliability, which has then sort of muddied the waters even more because you think we've got a new car, everything's going to be perfectly equal, and then people like George Russell uh, lose pretty much certain race wins or they they lose a pole position or you know, a, front pl- a front row start uh, and that's taken away from them so I think Artem's performances have been pretty mixed this year he's he struggled with qualifying quite a bit I'd say um, but the second half of the season that's improved massively um, he's still a little bit scrappy I'd say in, in qualifying especially and that's where uh, things are falling down from a little bit it's just little mistakes in, in different corners lock-ups, running wide um, we saw at Monza he, he beached the car on the kerb the at turn one and his qualifying lap there luckily his first lap was, was good enough for fourth so he, he'd done the job in that case um, but yeah Artem's not the finished package in in my opinion there's there's still a lot more work to be done there for him to be uh, at the level of some of the drivers we've discussed earlier in the podcast who you know should be in contention for Formula 1 seats and you know to think that Esteban Ocon could go without having a Formula 1 seat and that Artem would be promoted into F1 you know that's the that's the kind of level we're talking here. You know, we're talking about some really quality drivers, and there's no doubt Artem could be as you know performing at, the, at that level. Uh, whether he's you know ready for that now is a different question and a very difficult one to answer. But
0: well, he has won the Monaco Feature Race twice in F2 slash GP2. So I think on, on his best days, there's not too much too much doubt about him. But yeah, as, as this whole package, it seems a bit more hit and miss and it's more about um, connections elsewhere that could that could be financially advantageous for a team that means he's a, he's a contender.
3: I don't think there's any disputing that on his day his peaks are high enough that he's impressive and he's been capable of some very good results in F2, some very good championship finishes as well.
0: well he was, was he second in both races at Monza the last round? So, yeah.
3: I just I think that with the with the standard of drivers, as Jack said, with the standard of drivers we're talking about here and the fact that some of those drivers are going to miss out, the level's just so high in F1 at the moment that those guys who are a bit rough around the edges and, you know, you can be quick on your day, but you're not going to string it together all season. There's not really room for those guys at the moment, or there shouldn't be. And I do think that, yeah, it would be a a kind of a Russian financial super package, maybe, that would, um, would get him on the grid with Williams. And Jack said he's not the finished article yet. Yes, he got into the F2, GP2 level early, but after five years, if you're still not the... Finished article. How much longer do you stay there or where else do you go to become the finished article? Like and
0: he's twenty four next week, so he's not he's not young yeah. by rising single seater standards.
1: I think maybe taking this out of our hands and, and putting it in the hands of, of Renault, who he's obviously a you know a development driver for, they still go to, to Jack Aitken for the majority of their simulator work. So you know, if if we take that just at face value, they that says a lot. Renault value Jack Aitken's input more than they do Artem Markov. So, whether that's a you know a, 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 the fact that Artem's based in Russia, um, or if there's sort of a money situation going on there, or you know something, you know you, contractually it's very difficult to to negotiate the muddy waters. But on the face of things, Jack does most of their their simulator work, and they rate him very highly. And you know, Artem does a lot less. So I think that speaks volumes.
0: How about George Russell, who is, after all, leading the championship? He's Mercedes-affiliated. We've seen him in F1 cars, but he seems to be, he's been mentioned kind of as a contender for an F1 drive, but he seems to be slipping down the the pecking order.
1: Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I think um, Esteban Ocon is Mercedes's priority at the end of the day. Um, I think they see him as the, you know, one of the replacement drivers for their team in in the future. Uh, George, you know, may fall down the pecking order because of that really you know he's he's behind Esteban in, in the order and I don't think that's for a lack of talent or anything like that it's just the fact that you know George isn't in, in F1 yet and hasn't proven himself as a brilliant Formula 1 driver like Esteban Ocon has um, we talked about Williams and that seems to be the, the kind of final resting place for George there was a little bit of talk about Force India but that doesn't look like it's going to happen now well, he was
0: almost out at Monza on Friday wasn't he yeah
1: there was there was you know, George actually vetoed that himself and, and decided not to go out in the in the Formula One car on the basis that he wanted to concentrate on on the Formula Two title, which uh, paid dividends because it you know he won a race at the weekend and, and stuck it on pole for the feature. So uh, he's he's a very he's a very interesting character. George he's very uh, he's very happy on the face of things, very uh, casual when you speak to him, very laid back, but he's got a steely determination and he demands the absolute best from any team that he works with and anyone that he works with, including Mercedes. He's been quite vocal this year saying that he thinks his performance is warrant Mercedes finding him a spot in Formula 1 and he's, he's not scared to call people out like that, he's he's really determined but, but, but the, trou- the
0: trouble is Mercedes is struggling to find a spot for Ocon which it rates very highly, it does see Ocon as a very viable Mercedes works team driver in a way that the, the other junior Pascal Verline, they weren't quite so conv- convinced about, so that if if you're the second in the queue behind Esteban Ocon you've no matter how good you are you've got to be a bit worried haven't you
1: this is what it all comes down to and it's it's almost like it's um, you know we're getting to the point where it could be dis- considered a disadvantage to be a junior of one of the formula 1 teams because there's there's no doubt in my mind in a heartbeat that Toro Rosso would take Ocon Russell you know Norris any of these guys if they weren't affiliated to another team so George is kind of a he's not a victim of his own success in that sense but there's, there's there is people ahead of him in the pecking order, but some of these seats he's he's not eligible for simply because he's connected to Mercedes, and that that has done him a disservice
3: in a way. There does come a point, I think, where if these big teams, um, it'd be wrong to accuse them of hoarding these these top drivers because they give them a lot of support and they give those drivers uh, credibility, sometimes even backing, or they create opportunities for them. So it's worth being affiliated. But if you're Mercedes and you've got no room at the inn for Ocon or Russell, if you really believe in these guys you do own your own F1 team. So if, if Ocon was that good, as much as I rate Valtteri Bottas and don't want to talk him out of a drive, if Ocon's that good, sometimes you've got to move somebody on to create a space for him if you really believe in him. And potentially before Force India's ownership changed, that were, might have created a spot where we know that Force India were happy to take Ocon on loan before from Mercedes. They could have done the same with Russell. I think they ran him in some practice sessions at the end of last year as well. So they've always been keen on him. Um, but yeah, I, I have, I don't have much sympathy for the big team saying, oh, we've got all these great drivers and nowhere to put them when they're not choosing to put them in their, in their own teams. And it is a shame that these guys at the F2 level could potentially lose out. And I think it's very interesting what Jack said there, that we could be in a situation. George might be the sort of person who goes, you know what? I do fancy breaking out and giving this a go on my own. And then it would be really interesting to see if someone would come along and snap him up. It's, it's tough because Mercedes have been
1: key in Russell's career to get him to this point. You know, as, as, as talented as George is, it's very unlikely that he would have reached this point without Mercedes' help. So maybe to say it's a disadvantage to be a junior is uh, a little bit misleading, but it seems like it's a disadvantage to take that final step yes. into Formula One. I think that's where the disadvantage can lie. And, George has won five races in F2 this year. He's been the best driver in the championship, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. And I think the championship would already be won if it wasn't for how many serious reliability issues he'd had at key points in the season, not just reliability issues in practice sessions or, you know, things like that. He's, you know, he's he's lost wins and he's lost the top qualifying positions from from those situations. So he's definitely performed, you know, He's for Lando Norris and, and Lando Norris is on the, the F1 grid and that's obviously a, a result of the musical chairs. Of, but of also races. Lando's
3: team, McLaren, were prepared to boot out one of their incumbent drivers to give him a seat. Yeah, there does come to a point where you just have to make those
0: make those tough decisions, doesn't there? Uh, while we're on the subject of some of the F2 drivers, Jack, we should briefly mention the Honda Proteges. Uh, They're known to be keen to have a, a Honda back driver in, in Toro Rosso. Uh, neither of the two in, in Formula 2 will have enough super license points next year. But Nero Fukazumi, who obviously also excelled in, in GP3 and Tadasuki Makino, who scored an excellent victory, first two first first F2 victory at uh, Monza in the, in the feature race from, uh, from a very middling grid position. they they're, they're both seen as good. Wh- which of those two do you think has the most likely path to getting into a position where they get the super license points? It looks like we might get maybe Fukazumi having a run out in free practice on, Uh, For for Toro Rosso at at Suzuka because Honda are very keen. Honda are a sponsor of the event, of course. Very keen to have a have a home driver there. But but those two are they are they serious prospects to actually rack up those super licence points and then could they do something in F one? Presumably we're talking twenty twenty now.
1: Uh Naray's an interesting one because I think he's the the favoured son of the, the Honda program in terms of the, the juniors. Um he's had two years in, in GP three, uh, third last year with with ART and then has moved into F two with, with Arden International this year. They're a team that have really struggled with this new F two car and really struggled to deliver strong performances and Nuray's been working on his feedback this year to try and improve that, and you know there is areas where he needs to improve. But the team has struggled as a whole, and you look at Maxi Gunther as you know pushing Lando Norris all the way in in European F3 last year, and he's 13th in the standings this year in F2. And I don't believe that's all down to his own ability. You know I think there's a there's a there's definitely a team problem. Um, So it's it's difficult for Nuray. I think I think Honda were probably hoping that they could put him into F2, having finished third in GP3, and that he could you know finish well inside the top ten and score enough super license points to be in serious consideration to take that Toro Rosso seat it's quite funny at this point we might not be having these massive conversations about silly season if Nere had done well this year because he could have had that second Toro Rosso seat already and we you know we wouldn't be discussing it but Tadasuke Mikino, you mentioned um, was, was brilliant at the weekend very easy to kind of blame strategy because he started on the medium tyres compared to the, the leaders who started on the super softs but he still drove the perfect race and pulled out a gap to the other drivers on the mediums as well he's playing himself into into consideration for Honda I think and well if he isn't then he should be because he's been very impressive in only his second season in Europe, he had one season of European F3 last year, he missed pre-season testing and broke his wrist halfway through the year I think he finished 15th in the points um, so he's, he's a very green rookie he hasn't been with Honda as long as Nuret has um, so he'll be definitely one to watch for the future and if he continues his, his performances I think he could play his way in but also I think Honda know that Arden have had some serious problems this year and um, Tadasuki is with Russian Time who are the reigning teams champions and we're always going to be fairly sorted for this year and have a decent car so yeah, it's an interesting one and both of those two will definitely be an extension for Toro Rosso in 2020 to your question We've
0: talked a lot about uh, junior drivers not being put into into top team seats but Glenn, it now seems that the the on slash off slash on slash off Charles Leclerc's replaced Kimi Raikkonen at Ferrari move is now back on what exactly's gone on there? What, what? Why have we gone from? Yeah, it's going to be Leclerc, which it was after the Canadian Grand Prix. To oh no, it's going to be Raikkonen again. To oh no, it's going to be Leclerc.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that was one of the for me that was one of the best news stories to come out of the latest um silly season, merry-go-round that we've got going on at the moment. um I think he, he's the man that Ferrari need to need to give the opportunity to. We know they're cautious normally along making these kind of decisions. Why is it back on? um Ferrari obviously had a lot of uh, enforced upheaval over the summer due to the the death of Sergio Marchionne slightly before he was due to, to step down from the role anyway. And we know that he was a big fan of Leclerc and it looked like he was going to buck Ferrari's trend for avoiding going for young talent. And and that was great. But then the regime was in the process of changing and it appeared that at that point, there were going to be some, some people in positions of power who were keen on Kimi Raikkonen who's having a, a decent season i would still say that he's not having a good enough season on the whole to continue to occupy one of the best seats on the f1 grid but what appeared to emerge uh from italy during the weekend was that in fact the people who are now sort of have their feet under the table at ferrari and everything's settled down the the replacement phase for Marchioni is is complete almost it seems now they want to effectively honour his wishes or continue the good work and continue on the path that he was going down. And that includes with driver selection. So the clerk has gone from looking like he was going to stay at Sauber for a second year, um, occasionally being thrown into, the, thrown into the mix for perhaps a half seat. Suddenly we're back to the point where we're saying... Okay, he is going to get the Ferrari drive. And I really hope that this time it sticks and we're not here in four weeks' time doing a podcast on why they've kept Kimi Raikkonen again. I think it makes perfect sense for Ferrari. They've invested in
0: in Charles Leclerc. He's excelled over the course of the season the past few races haven't been great but that's partly down to Sauber having a few a few struggles and I think it just makes perfect sense to, to put him in he'll keep Vettel on his toes they've got a succession plan for Vettel what the, the worst thing that can happen is you get this kind of paralysis with the big teams and they just sort of because because a driver's never won a Grand Prix because you've never put him in a Grand Prix winning car you're like oh we need a winner and then he might go down a, f- a few years down the line and then Vettel, say, retires or moves somewhere else and they say, oh, we need a proven driver. This, this Leclerc guy's not, not proven. And suddenly you just, you, you beat up on this path where, where this very impressive junior driver just never gets out of the midfield because you never let him out. And it's this vicious circle.
3: Well, the only two major driver changes we've had at the top teams in recent years have been enforced. You know, Mercedes were caught on the hop by Nico Rosberg retiring as world champion. They had to pluck Bottas from the midfield uh, with Williams. So Bottas got an opportunity that way. Arguably, he'd probably still be a Williams driver now, wouldn't he? If that hadn't happened. And then the only reason we've got the shuffling that's gone on uh, with Red Bull and subsequently Toro Rosso is because Ricardo caught Red Bull by surprise by not signing the deal they thought they were going to have him locked down to. So there's not really been a change yet from the big teams in terms of getting away from this conservatism. And that's why I think it could be really significant for, for Ferrari to do this. We've seen with Red Bull promoting Max Verstappen, that you can hit the ground running if you're good enough. Leclerc, I believe, is certainly at that level, and I think he could do a good job straight away. One thing I think actually works in Ferrari's favour here as well is that if you promote a young guy, unless you have a kind of Hamilton-Alonzo-McLaren situation, there's a chance the younger guy is going to accept the opportunity on some terms that mean you kind of have to play second fiddle to Vettel and Vettel's always liked the fact that Raikkonen does that Raikkonen doesn't really want to rock the boat he certainly does want to win races and was very disappointed not to do that last weekend but I think if Leclerc went in there yes he can keep Vettel on his toes but I don't think he's going to go in there and and create real real problems for Vettel certainly to begin with Um, but he's definitely fast enough Just, just stick him in the car Yeah, he's proved what he needs to prove. You can always have
0: more experience, but he'll gain more experience from a a season in a Ferrari than he will will in a Sauber. But it just sums up how this silly season has been. We've seen constant, these sort of shifting sands, changes. Everybody has been caught out by things that have happened. You know, anybody who tells you, oh yeah, I saw all of these things coming is just making it up to make themselves look clever because so many unexpected factors have uh, have played a part.
1: You have to hope uh, Leclerc's promotion brings Giovinazzi into the conversation a little bit more as well because I think he's definitely someone who should be talked about more and someone who just seems to be completely absent from this silly season at the moment but someone who's been credited by the likes of Vettel for improving Ferrari's course over the weekend with his excellent simulator work. Did a good job when he came in for Sauber I thought. You know, he's, he should be someone in the conversation as well and yeah, it's it it comes back to this, uh, wondering whether it's a disadvantage to be linked to a team again because I think Giovanazzi is another one who you know Toro Rosso would take a serious look at if if they could and he didn't have a you know affiliation.
0: Well, Giovanazzi he's been mentioned as a possibility for Toro Rosso. They had some conversations there. He's got a chance with Sauber because Ferrari controls one of the two Sauber seats. So if Leclerc does indeed go into the Ferrari seat, which looks likely to happen, there's a there's a space there. But at the same time, he is a valuable simulator driver. He's done some very very good work for them. And given that they're willing to let Kvyat go, who's also on their book. That's basically their two frontline F1... Kind of reserve slash development slash simulator drivers out of the picture, so I'm not sure whether they'd necessarily be entirely happy with that. I think Giovinazzi could be a victim of his own of his own success in that regard, but we'll we'll see exactly what Ferrari can do. He's not to be discounted, and as we've learned in this silly season, things change constantly. And uh, yeah, there, there there will be some more unexpected moves moves happening. And and I would say that probably the best way to keep of them is check out Autosport.com, where uh, just about every few days there's been a, another shock revelation about shameless uh, plug. Exactly.
3: Hopefully yeah. there aren't any more changes, but before this podcast comes out well you never know you never know but
0: we can do some clever editing so you can all sound like you're uh, you're talking about uh, about things that have subsequently been
1: announced I hope you do some clever editing to make us sound like we know what we're talking about as well
0: nobody is that good an editor Jack nobody yeah. check out autosport.com and also our plus subscribers area all sorts of in-depth features there on F1, WRC, IndyCar the whole uh, the whole world of motorsport to be found on there Autosport Magazine out every Thursday this week's uh, issue obviously has the Italian Grand Prix coverage in depth and also check out Sister Time f1 racing magazine out monthly and motorsport.com thanks for joining us we'll be back soon with another auto sport podcast